I'm talking to a chap called Scott Miller, who is a rather old-school industry legend. Uh, he's probably best known for founding Apogee Software, which was later known as 3D Realms. And you may remember that they are associated with titles such as the original Duke Nukem, the original Shadow Warrior, games like Terminal Velocity, Max Payne. Uh, one of my personal favourites was Wacky Wheels. I don't know if everyone remembers that. It was uh, like a kart racing game, but it was on PC, which made it rather unique because those kind of games you didn't normally get on PC. So, let's get on with the interview. If you want to just start uh, by sort of introducing yourself, uh, maybe mentioning what people will best kind of know you for, and uh, maybe what you're up to now these days. Okay, well, I'm Scott Miller. Um, I got my start around 1990 with a company called Apchi, which was sort of the pioneer of the whole shiver movement back in the days. We were the ones that sort of invented the idea of releasing games online in an episodic format, and um, and people would get the first version, the first episode for free, and then send money to get the rest of it. Um, and uh, one of the first things I did back in 1990 was I started recruiting other authors, other game developers, to help out with what I was doing. And um, I ended up recruiting some of the people that uh, became id Software at the time, and we did a game called Commander Keen together, and then uh, a game called Wolfenstein together. And as each company grew, we you know we each hired more and more people, and id Software went on to do their own thing with Doom, and we went on to do our own thing with uh, Duke Nukem uh, 3D, um, and. Uh, Let's see, what else did we do? We did games like Shadow Warrior, Rise of the Triad. Um, Raptor was a pretty big hit for us. Uh, Max Payne. Pre- I mean, I mean, I mean um, you, know, the, the, you know, what is now 3D Rounds or Apogee back then, people kind of associate it with lots of classic games. Um, what do you mainly attribute that to? Was there some specific design philosophy or the people that you were going after or... Yeah, when the game, when the company got started, it was the idea was let's do sort of like arcade style games that people were seeing on consoles but weren't seeing on the PC. So we were trying to do basically like platformers, you know, Nintendo style platformers, um, and just other sort of quick fix games that, um, you know, I mean, other companies were doing like adventure games and so on, but we wanted to do really sort of games that were as graphically as an intensive as the PC could handle. So right. so that's kind of in a way what started the whole engine wars race and everything is because, you know, from the outset, it was like we want to push the PC as hard as possible to get to the level to work and compete with consoles. And so it was always about, you know, we need the best engine possible to, to make this happen. We need to be as cutting edge as possible. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was that sort of, you know, goal in mind to compete with consoles that, that really pushed us to really, you know, design the best code we could. Right. So, I, I mean, um, not just in terms of the technology, but um, 
often, you know, the, the, the gameplay of these games was, was really good as well. So, um, like, what was there a certain kind of design philosophy that was going on there? Or Well, um, I think that we just, well, when the company got started, a lot of us were in our 30s, like I was. And, um, you know, I had grown up playing games and actually making games since I was 15 years old and playing in arcade, uh, you know, playing in arcades constantly. I grew up in, you know, in the 80s when the whole arcade scene, you know, really exploded with, you know, Space Invaders, Asteroids, all those games, Defender. Um, and in a way, that was like all training, you know, for, you know, what makes a game fun, what makes it, you know, annoying, you know, let, let's, and so all this sort of background that we had playing games, you know, my partner George was the same age as me. And so, you know, we just had this, this background of playing games and we had always talked about what we liked about games, what we didn't like about games, how they could be improved. And so all this sort of like mental back and forth was kind of preparing us to be game developers in our future, which, we, you know, we didn't realize that was going to be our end up, you know, that was going to end up being our, our fate, but uh, it ended up working out that way to where all of this talk about games, you know, really gave us solid ideas about what makes a game good, you know, what we don't want to see in games and so on. And so we had a really good sense of like fairness in, in games. So we never tried to make our games too hard. Uh, we had, uh, you know, we were like the first company to really push the idea of, um, uh, for instance, having saves in every one of our games. Back when we started doing this, it was actually kind of rare. And another thing that we sort of pioneered was the, was the idea of um, we removing lives from games. I don't think there was any company before us that, right. that eliminated the idea of, like, you're starting with, like, three lives. Um, I remember having this idea back very early on, a game called Monuments of Mars, um, where we were designing that game, and it had three lives. And, um, you know, you, you know you'd, you'd get your three shots to the level, then die. And I was like, why are we letting people die here? You know, the punishment should be they just haven't finished the level. They haven't made it to the next level. So we eliminated the idea of lives. And, you know, that that kind of caught on also. Although in software, I think it took them about two games before they they – did that. I think that was that seemed a little risky for them. So I know they came up with Wolfenstein, which had lives, even though at the time I was trying to push them to to not have lives. But um, I think with Doom they get rid of lives, did they? Uh, with, with with Doom it was gone. Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um. So you know, so our, our philosophy included the idea: let's just be fair. Let's give people you know the chance to to replay levels, you know, through saves and just infinite lives. And um, so I, I think our games had a, just a good sense of fairness about them to where you never came across, you know, these shelf moments that were so impossibly hard that you just couldn't get past it, which I had experienced along with my partner, George, in lots of games previously, especially like on the Amiga side, um, you know, where there were some games yeah. that, you know, we spent weeks and weeks trying to get past you know, the first couple of levels and they were just so hard. And God, what was one of those games? The Beast? Um, right. I can't remember the name of the game, but so we just had it in our minds. We don't want to have games to where people can't finish the game. Right. In fact, I always thought, let's if we're going to make an error, let's err on the side of being too easy. Because I always felt like, you know, let people at least, you know, if they're going to buy a game from me, let them at least be able to finish it. 
and, and right. experience the whole, the sort of whole sweep of the game and all the levels. And, you know, even if it might have been too easy, at least they would have seen the whole game and feel like they got their money's worth. And, and we also had difficulty levels in our games, too. So if, if uh, you know, if the game was too easy, you could crank it up to a harder level. But um, I just always wanted to make sure people could be able to finish the game that they bought. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's something that really, uh, if you put in save states in there, that's something that really, that it, that it will really let people do because uh, they don't have to restart the whole game um, every time they run out of lives. And then you've got the the difficulty levels would do would add an aspect of replayability, I suppose. Yep. So that after people finish the game, they can sort of try it on a harder difficulty. Um. So back then, kind of, what were your what were your personal favourites in terms of the games that uh, Apogee or 3D Realms put out? Um. Probably, um... I mean, for, for for me personally, like if I'm looking at the list, obviously there's you know, there's games on there like Duke Nukem and um, yeah, I mean, those are the obvious ones. Um... Yeah, they're sort of the obvious ones that everyone was playing. One that jumped out to me is uh, Wacky Wheels. Like I remember playing, I remember playing a lot of that because there wasn't there wasn't too many games like that on the PC back then where you could sort of play with two people on one PC and particularly a game that was that good uh, and that kind of enjoyable to play. Right. Well, that, that's, that's a case there where those kind of kart racers were on, you know, the consoles and a team approached us with a demo. Um, and actually, I think they were from England, this team, a team of two people. And, right. um, you know, they had this demo running and we were like, well, yeah, you know, this isn't happening on the PC. Let's make it happen on the PC. Um, and uh, so that was a pretty risky project because it did have the dual player mode. Um, right. I think that project actually took about a year longer to make than we originally sort of anticipated it would. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was definitely one that uh, I would consider uh, one of my favorites. I would also put um, – I've always been a fan of, like, the space shooters, so I, I – I loved Raptor. I loved Star Gunner, which came along later. Um, I, I was a big fan of uh, Death Rally, um, which was done by Remedy, who then their next game was Max Payne. Um, what else? I liked uh, I liked Monster Bash quite a bit. So yeah, so, I mean, so um, did you kind of have a? I mean. How much did you personally have a hand? I know some of these games you were you were kind of all over them, and other games you were just like you say with Wacky Wheels. It was just another team that were kind of putting them together. Right. Yeah. Several of the games we didn't have a whole lot of involvement with. Um, Wacky Wheels was one of them. Something called a game called Mystic Towers. Um, but other games like like Death Rally and Raptor, uh, you know, Wolfenstein. Um, even the Commander Keen games, you know, we had a lot of input on those. Uh, you know, we were seeing builds all the time and giving them a lot, a lot of, I mean, just a lot of feedback. Um, yeah. You know, and that really, that really, uh, probably the game that, that had the most feedback was Max Payne, where I was practically working with those guys almost daily and 
sending them lists and uh, and I felt like with that game, especially, um, you know, a lot of the bigger ideas like bullet time came from me. Um, right. Okay. That that's sort of the dynamic that that game was was known for at first. Uh huh. So um, and, and it a lot of it came down to the fact that, for instance, like working with uh, Max Payne and the Team Remedy, you know, they were just such a great team to work with. And uh, you know, by that time, also um, in the the later nineties, you know, internet was really making it easy to communicate. And um, God, was Skype around then? I don't know if Skype was around then, maybe. Um, but uh, I, I just knew that was, you know, the communication channels were just completely wide open between 3D Realms and Remedy. And, and also, I was visiting them. You know, I had visited them three times during the development, and they had visited us several times. So we were just, like, in constant communication, and it was easy for them to, to, to get us builds of the game, and we would provide all kinds of feedback. So, I mean, that, that was probably my most enjoyable experience helping, um, you know, another team develop a game. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, the, 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 I mean, the original Max Payne, that wasn't too long ago. When, when did you say it was? Sorry, it was that, like, that came out in 2001, but it, it started right. around mid-1997. Yeah, so that was, that was a, yeah, so, okay, okay, so about 15... 20 years ago, depending on when you take it from. Um, so obviously you've kind of lived through a lot of changes in the gaming industry over time. Um, and uh, I, I was speaking to another dev recently um, who was saying how, you know, now even the changes that have been in the last kind of two to three years, uh, the technology and the things that devs have access to, like um, with early access and with um, people who are testing the game can kind of go and, stream it on Twitch um, and then the devs can Skype them and talk to them about their feedback and then they can kind of implement changes and they, you can have these kind of dev teams that are all working uh, you know you don't you don't have to be in an office anymore you can kind of all work remotely and Skype together and stuff like that um, I mean uh, with you, you've kind of been in the industry a long time like where do you see things going with this do you think this will be the kind of future where teams you kind of have smaller teams that are kind of all over the world working together or? Yeah, I mean, these virtual teams, um, it's, you know, back, back even in the, in the, in the 90s when it was just Apache and three rooms was getting started, you know, we had several virtual teams we were working with where people were scattered, you know, four corners of the world. Um, but nowadays, it's, it's just so much easier. It's just so much easier. Like, I mean, you can use, um, you know, I work with some teams and we use secret Facebook groups, for instance, to to do a lot of discussion, um, you know, because people seem to have Facebook open all the time anyway. And so it's easy to get, you know, you hear your notification and and you can check out what someone posted in the group and provide immediate feedback. You can see screenshots or pictures or concept art or People can link to videos, secret videos on YouTube, and there's just so many ways to like share information. Now it makes it makes the virtual team concept, um, you know, easier than it's ever been, and it's probably only going to get even easier in the future. Um, so, I mean, that's that's kind of the model that Interceptor is is working on now. Is you know they have a team of like I think close to 50 people, and there's only about seven or eight people in the Denmark office, kind of like the team leads, and they sort of manage through Skype and all these other 
you know, methods. They, they manage the rest of the team. It's, so far, it's proven to be very effective. Um, and for, for people who are part of the team, it's in lots of ways a plus for them too, because they don't have to worry about relocation anymore. They can work from home, um, you know, and set their own hours. You know, like if they have children, uh, you know, they can be at home and not to worry about, you know, finding babysitters or so on. Um, right. And, and, you know, and I've seen some people who are on these virtual teams, you know, jump from different projects to, to other projects. So, and they just get to stay at home. So I think that we're going to see a lot more of this in the future. And it's almost becoming a bit like the movie industry model to where people don't necessarily work with a team. They work with a project and when a project is over, they can jump to another team. But, you know, for people in Hollywood, everyone has to be located in Hollywood for this to work. But with this virtual team model, you can be located pretty much anywhere in the world and it still works. Yeah. So it intercepted. They they've done um, they've recently done a couple of remakes of of kind of your old IPs, haven't they? Um, are they are they working on anything at the moment with uh, yeah? I mean, uh, IPs. They they kind of get their start with uh, the reboot of Rise of the Triad, mm. um, and that's done pretty well. That was a you know that was a, a pretty very. That, if people knew how small of a budget that game had, uh, they'd be <laughs> surprised at how well it turned out versus the budget. And it turned out pretty well. Um, but right now they're doing a new IP, uh, an IP that I came up with actually in the 90s called Bombshell. Um, All right. And this, this, the idea kind of came from me watching an old movie starring Pamela Anderson called Barbed Wire. Did you ever see that movie? No, I haven't seen it. It's, no. it's a pretty crap movie. <laughs> but, uh, but she plays this sort of character that's sort of like an apocalyptic future and she's kind of badass and stuff. And I thought, you know, right. the game industry really only had Laura Croft at the time as sort of this female hero, hero that was standing out and, and doing well. And so um, the idea of a bombshell was let's, let's design another female action hero, but make her um, less sort of adventure focused like Laura and, more, you know, very much more action focused. And so uh, we ended up making her a demolitions expert. We had her lose her arm, um, you know, in, right. in, in an accident that happened to kind of give her a unique look. And plus the arm would have special abilities. And uh, we were actually making her, making her in her own game back in the, the late 90s. But that team didn't really work out. Um, so we, we thought of, we had the idea, well, let's roll her into the Duke Nukem universe and, okay. Uh, and the first E3 preview of Duke Nukem Forever, which was in the Quake Engine, I think in 1998, you actually see a female character, and that was supposed to be the first showing a bombshell. But we ended up taking her out of Duke Nukem Forever, and um, so she didn't appear in there. And so now she's getting her chance to have her own game, and you know, working with the Interceptor team, we we. We've refined her design a lot, given her a better backstory and all this kind of stuff. We've kind of created this whole story universe for her so that, you know, if the first game's successful, we have sort of like this whole mythology and everything that we can go back to and keep making games. Um, so that game's going to be out the second half of this year. And um, that's one of those games that's being made where, you know, about 40 of the people, about 40 of the 50 people on that project are located 
you know, outside the main office in Denmark. Right. So it's it's being coordinated remotely. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, 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 I just had a, a quick look at Interceptor's uh, wiki, actually. And it, um, it, it, they, it mentions there that they encourage their staff to kind of work from home and stuff like that, which I, I guess is kind of, the, you know, like we were talking about, it's sort of the way the industry is going, where uh, there's no need to kind of really be physically located in an office with the other devs. Sure. And you can go to bombshell.com to check out that game if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Okay. Um, you did just mention uh, Rise, the remake of Rise of the Triad. Um, just talking about the, the, the original Rise of the Triad, I know there's, there's kind of a, an interesting story with that because it was, I think it was originally supposed to be a sequel to Wolfenstein. Right, yeah. Um, after Spare Destiny came out, which was the uh, the sequel to Wolfenstein, it was sort of like the retail sequel. It wasn't shareware. Um, I, I I went to Ed Software and and because they were working on Doom, and uh, I went to Ed Software and said, you know, look, you know, this Wolfenstein franchise still has lots of legs. You know, there's you know, it's still making tons of money. You know, we shouldn't just abandon it. Let's let's figure out some way to do something with it. And I said, right. I said, you know, I know you guys are are, are you know eyeball deep in doing Doom, why don't you let us develop the game? And they liked the idea, and so we put together this agreement that basically allowed Apache to develop a, a new, uh, you know, Wolfenstein, and um, the story that we came up with was called Rise of the Triad. It was going to be Wolfenstein, Rise of the Triad. And, um, you know, we had brought in, you know, at, by that time, Tom Hall had left his software, and we had brought him into Apache to to be the team lead on this project. Um, you know, and his software liked the idea and everything. And, you know, so we had a whole internal staff that was, that was going to make this game. Anyway, as Doom got further and further along, it was, it was like, I guess, more confident that what they had was going to be, you know, a big-time hit. And I don't think they wanted to see another Wolfenstein game out there that may steal some of the limelight from Doom. So uh, we got a call from them one day, and they just said, you know, we're canceling the project. And so it ended up being canceled. But we had, by that time, we had all these assets and everything done. And so Tom Hall was like, well, let me see if I can come with some sort of idea that allows us to basically still use all these assets, but in a game that's not called Wolfenstein. And so... Right. That's, that ended up being Rise of the Triad. We kept that part of the name, but we dropped the Wolfenstein part of the name, and we had, you know, we, <clears throat> so that's why there's a lot of similarities between the games. You know, it's kind of still got some, something that looks like, you know, the Nazis are the bad guy. I think we ended up calling them something else. But, um, so, yeah, that's, that's the backstory for that game. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, just, uh, about, about two weeks ago, we had the, uh, the 3D Realms anthology come out on Steam. Uh, I think it, it, it's been avail- available for download from the 3D Realms website for uh, for a few months, hasn't it? For about six months. Right. Um, and th- and that's kind of that's mainly just the games released in their original state, isn't it? They haven't been kind of touched up or altered in any way. I think there's a there's a remastered soundtrack which comes along with it. Um, that's but, right. There's like ten ten songs that uh, that have been completely remastered. Right. 
Um, I mean, have you been tempted, especially now that you've done this, uh, kind of looking at any of these games, particularly the ones that maybe um, kind of got lost by the wayside and haven't really been looked at again? Have you, have you been tempted to kind of give them a uh, kind of a touching up, kind of a new, a, a fresh coat of paint and maybe a re-release like that? Like maybe, well, for example, um, having features like integrated multiplayer through Steam and things like that. Yeah, I don't think that we'd want to go back and... I mean, believe it or not, most of the code for those older games, we can't find it. <laughs> even, <laughs> right. the, even the original authors and teams, you know, they just don't have it. Um, right. You yeah, know, that, back, that doesn't, that doesn't back, surprise me, actually. <laughs> back, back in those days, no one had any idea that these games would survive for more than a few years in terms of, you know, people still wanting to play them. So it was never like a priority to like, you know, we need to, you know, save the code and print out all the, you know, the, the program and just, you know, save things. And, and there wasn't a cloud to save things on. You, you stuck it on like, you know, a zip drive, you know, and those things probably don't last more than five or ten years anyway. Um, so, But it just wasn't that the idea wasn't in our heads. You know, we hadn't seen the phenomenon yet that games could basically survive more than a decade or even two decades. And the way it's looking now, they may they may still be playable in a hundred years. You just never know. Right, um, yeah. <clears throat> so it just wasn't part of our game plan to to really make sure that we were saving this stuff for for future profit and, and maybe modification. Um. But uh, <clears throat> you know, we we do look at the old catalog and think, you know, which of these games would be good for a reboot? You know, like Rise of the Triad. Uh, Shadow Warrior has been recently rebooted, um, and I don't know if you've seen, but there was there's a fan based effort to reboot um, Wacky Wills. That right. that just uh, like two weeks ago that got um, greenlit on Steam's uh, on Steam. So um, okay, so there's that going on, and that that's actually a project that. You know, we didn't initiate ourselves. It was just some some guys that you know said, "Hey, we're fans of this game. We we'd like to reboot it." And you know, um, this this started probably like two years ago. And, and I gave them the thumbs up. You know, we have an agreement in place or anything. And you know, because with a game like that, if someone doesn't come along and reboot it, it's dead anyway. So yeah, might as well let someone take a shot at it. Um, right. Okay. And if people were to approach us for some of these other games, you know, we'd probably give them the right to go ahead and, and, and reboot it also. Uh, but for us, we have to sort of weigh the idea of, you know, is it really worth rebooting a project or, um, you know, maybe doing something new like like a bombshell or something. You know, so in some cases like Rise of the Triad and, and Shadow War, it's definitely a game that is probably worthy of a reboot. And those reboots have actually done really well. So... Yeah. Um, but a lot of these games, you know, it's probably not really worth the effort to to bring them back, you know, using modern engines and, and art and all that kind of stuff. Um, and and we just don't have the code to go back and and do much with them. Yeah. So, so it, they're, they're kind of like frozen in, in their their nineties condition, <laughs> for, you know, forever. Yeah. So if, they, if anything was to be done, it's most likely using the IP and, and making something new. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's not that many games that when you look through the catalog are worthy of a reboot. 
I mean, right. they were cute little games for the time, but, you know, I don't think anyone's clamoring for a reboot. Right. Um, so, sort of, what, what other stuff? You've already mentioned kind of Bombshell. Uh, what other stuff are you kind of, uh, are you kind of working with at the moment? Up, um, like, what sort, what sort of projects are, are going on that are connected to um, 3D Realms and, and you and things like that? Well, right now, 3D Realms is, um, is pretty focused on Bombshell. And, uh, and the idea is that after Bombshell's done, um, 3D Realms is going to start getting into the business of working with third-party authors and, and teams like we, you know, like we, like we did in the 90s, especially. Right. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that because, um, you know, the, the indie market is just huge now. Uh, there's, you know, all these things with Kickstarter and early access and, you know, you can have a team of just two or three people that can make us, you know, a really darn good game. Um, like for instance, um, like Crossy, uh, Crossy Road on the mobile games. Um, yeah. that was made by three people basically in just a few months. And, uh, you know, it's, it's done extremely well. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, there's all sorts of opportunity now for smaller teams to, to experiment and get their start. Um, so 3D Realms in the future is going to start, you know, actively searching for these kind of teams and seeing what we can bring to the party as far as like helping them, you know, with, with art resources, coding resources, getting in touch with, with other developers if they're missing a few key people on their team. And basically this is all the stuff that we did back in the nineties. We'd we like to, to get back to doing it. Um, and sort of like trying to find hidden gems, you know, developers that, uh, that are out there that have the talent, but maybe it's not, may not have the complete set of resources to bring their vision to market. And particularly with, with things like, um, the unity engine, you know, you can, you can even have, you can get, have games, you know, made by like one or two people and they look pretty good, <laughs> you know, with, with engines like that. Yeah, it really is amazing now. The tools that are available to developers. <laughs> I mean, you know, back in the '90s, you had to basically build everything from the ground up. There weren't all these great middleware tools, and the programming environments were so different and primitive compared to today. So yeah, nowadays it doesn't take a big team to put something impressive on the screen. It's it's really quite quite amazing, and I think it's only going to get better as you know the years go by.